Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. I am so honored to have with me today a dear friend and colleague, Reverend Chris Moles. And Chris is an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, as well as a senior pastor of the chapel, which is in West Virginia. Chris is a certified biblical counselor with ACBC and IABC and a trained group facilitator in domestic violence intervention and prevention. Chris also holds a BA in Bible from Cedarville College an MA in Biblical Counseling from Faith Biblical Seminary, and he's pursuing a DTL from Baki Graduate University. Chris is the author of an amazing book called The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Control and Violence in the Home. He's also a contributor on the West Virginia Coalition Against Domestic Violence, Statewide Intervention Curriculum, and a contributor to Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. So welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for giving me your time and blessing my audience with your great wisdom, both as a pastor and a counselor who works with abusers, which is so rare um, that I have someone I trust and who does biblical counseling with men who abuse. But what got you interested in this whole area of abusive marriages? You're a pastor. Well, it's it's my privilege to be on the podcast. I guess I wish it was a really light from heaven story that got me involved in the work. But honestly, I needed some extra cash as a bivocational pastor. And I was offered an opportunity uh, to take on some additional classes. At that time, I was teaching in corrections part-time, life skills, parenting. And a friend of mine, one of the officers, was starting a batterer intervention program. And she invited me to be the co-lead in that. And that's, that was my step into the work. I went and was trained at the police Academy on uh, batter intervention. The Duluth model was the, my first uh, training that I went into and then jumped right in, began working with one individual. Our first class was with one guy and that grew over the years to the point that I have now, Oh, I, I had a class yesterday at the time of this recording. I, I'm going to say thousands of cases at this point, of interacting with men who have been convicted of domestic violence crimes or uh, have been issued a domestic violence protection order. And then, you know, as God saw fit, uh, as a pastor and biblical counselor, began to integrate that work with the work I was doing in the church. And so now I have the privilege of speaking to churches and conferences and to uh, do interviews like this, to talk about how the gospel intersects with accountability, responsibility, violence, and peace. That's so good. As a pastor and as a counselor, when you were getting your training, was there any conversation about this? Uh, as far as from a uh, Christian Seminary, perspective? Yeah, a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would say no. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, I don't recall ever hearing about domestic abuse in any of my coursework. Now, in seminary, we referenced it. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me, Leslie, or has as I've grown in this work, when I first began my graduate work, I actually had been in domestic violence work for about a year and I began to gather everything I could find on uh, DV from a Christian perspective. And I, I've said many times that I could fit everything I found in one cardboard file folder box. This was around 2008. So this isn't like some ancient history, right? This is 2008 and I could fit everything, not just from a conservative Christian or a biblical counseling perspective. I mean, everything from uh, Catherine Crager to Nancy Nason Clark to Julian Bob Owens to everyone I could find, I fit in that box. And I think what it did for me was really spark this desire to inform and educate the church. And at that same time, one of my mentors at the counseling program, uh, Steve Byers, had just said in passing that each of us should be writing. And he said, you should be contributing to the movement. And I'd never thought about writing, never thought anyone would want to hear what I had to say. I was just trying to shepherd well uh, and continue my education to do it better. And that gave me permission. Like I really felt like, well, somebody in the know gave me permission and the ball just started rolling from there to the point that God's allowed me to be a voice in this work in a specific community. 
So primarily you work with abusive men, right? The ones who have been court ordered. And what have you learned about these men that helped you understand why they do what they do? You know, it's, I think the intersection of what I've done for years as a biblical counselor and domestic violence work, there's a really sweet spot in this um, aspect of the heart. And I think that's been the one thing that's helped me the most in both worlds, um, you know, making that connectivity is the centrality of the heart, the the heart from a theological perspective being this idea of cognition, emotion, and volition, you know, the things that we think, the way that we feel, the choices that we make, and how it impacts our lives and the lives of others. For me, seeing and interacting with such a high volume of abusive men, I found that there was a lot of commonality. Now, yes, some of the behaviors are common. You can see that if you're looking at some of the observational things like the power and control wheel or some of the standard uh, literature that's out there. But there's some more commonality beneath the surface, uh, the first of which is pride. I've said many times that all violent people are prideful, even if all prideful people are not violent. And so pride and arrogance, entitlement are all really um, deep, deep-rooted realities to the abusive man as are um, beliefs, worldview. I often talk with guys about the the single-mindedness, the narrow-mindedness of a worldview that is so consumed with themselves. That's one of the reasons why abusers can um, play the victim so well. There's a legitimate uh, worldview in place that makes them the victim, that people are out to get them. There's so much privilege and entitlement uh, involved that I think that's the biggest commonality wed with the great desire for control, controlling circumstances, outcomes, and even people. So I would say those are the things I've learned the most interacting and being, I mean, just spending hours with abusive men, the the depth of pride, the desire for control. And then I guess lastly, the, um, the use or abuse of power, which is really key to the work. Yeah. And, and if we want to be more practical, I think one of the beliefs that I have seen over and over and over again in abusive men, whether they're abusing physically, whether they're abusing spiritually, whether they're abusing financially or sexually, is I'm entitled to have life go well for me and not have any bumps in the road. And if there are bumps, whether it's a traffic jam or you burnt dinner or you're not going to have sex with me tonight or you're bugging me because you're asking me too many questions, then I'm entitled to punish you for that. I'm entitled to take out my irritation, my rage, my frustration on you so that you won't do that because I'm entitled to you to fix my life and make sure that nothing upsets me. Sure. I just had this conversation with a gentleman uh, this week talking about uh, two things, one being the benefits of discomfort, that discomfort is actually something that can be a gift if we can recognize it and, and live within it. We, if we could just take a beat and allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. And many abusive men do not. They, they just attempt to control circumstances in such a way that they can um, be comfortable again, be in control again, so they don't feel out of place. The second kind of goes in hand, hand in hand with that, and that is the, the substitution of respect with fear. Like I'll tell guys that you know they really want to be respected, but they'll settle for fear. And so we really want something. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be challenged. I want to be respected. Can't get that. So I'll settle for intimidation, fear, tactics that grant me kind of a fake peace. But as we know, it's not lasting. It's, it's, it's peace, peace where there's no real peace. It's this claim of peace and it's really destructive and uh, living in turmoil. And one of the guys even admitted that to me, you know, this week we were talking about that very idea of discomfort. And he said, you know, the harder I try to control things, the more out of control they become. And I'm like, bingo, that's, that's the lie that you've been believing that you're sovereign when really God is the only one who's sovereign. Yeah. If we take a tiny little rabbit trail into parenting, I'm sure there's some parents listening to say, what do I do to help my little boys not grow up to be abusers? What are some of the things in parenting that I can watch for or, you know, kind of squash if I need to, um, that would kind of, or what do I feed that kind of grows this selfish, entitled, prideful man, because they don't become that way overnight. Yeah. Let me just say at the outset, I, you know, all these years working in this category and with this population, 
I found that abuse is a learned behavior. You and and just to use simple simple terms, I think the most sim- simple way to view it is you either learn it through modeling, so you see it, right, or you learn it through trial and error. So I, I do think it's important that the listeners know that you can do everything right, and your children still choose this path. Because abuse works. If if you want to get what you want from an intimate partner, short term abuse will get it for you. Intimidation, threats, coercion, it works. And so sometimes men learn this behavior through trial and error. And I say men because it's such re- it's such a readily available tool to men with power. Uh, the other is, of course, modeling. They can see it happen. So let's go to that for just a second. Part of that is recognizing the need for young men to uh, interact with women with respect, um, understanding that God has given them certain tools and advantages in this world that it's important for them to, to, to steward, not to abuse. I think I always use the Spider-Man principle when Uncle Ben says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. So there is something about being a man, that there's many good things about being a man, but there's also some things that in the wrong hands can be twisted and dangerous. And having those open discussions with young men to talk about how you're created, how you're bigger, faster, stronger. And with that comes a level of responsibility, how even within the family, you're going to bear some positional responsibility that's going to require some intentionality and stewardship, modeling that for our kids. And I'm mostly talking to men right now, because I think men, I think domestic abuse, if I can rabbit trail myself for a second, is a man's problem, a men's issue. I think men primarily uh, participate in these behaviors. I think women are more unlikely the victims of these behaviors and choices. And I also think that men are the ones who should be speaking into this problem. And one of that is talking to our sons about responsibility, power, service, leadership from real biblical perspectives rather than this worldly perspective. I I do fear that the church in many ways, our view of leadership, position, and power has been hijacked by a kingdom of the world theology as opposed to the way Jesus modeled, uh, lived, um, um, the examples that he gave and even the imperatives that he gave us, which really contradict this idea of headship as a power over dictatorship. So I think having open and honest conversations with young men is really important. I think valuing women openly is super important. Um, Letting little boys and young men see that women are a significant part of our society and lives and really honoring women publicly as much as we can is a big step in the right direction. Something I think the church should do a much better job of as far as balancing out kind of the gender disparities that we see in the church. It doesn't mean we have to change our polity if your church polity is a certain way, uh, but it does mean we can change our practicality. We can act better towards each other. And I think that goes a long way with young men. Yeah. And I think as women who are often victims of abuse, you know, when your children watch that, what they're going to learn is that that's normal unless you say different, right? So bad things happen to people, but it's not normal for a husband to treat a wife this way. It's not good for this to happen. And so when that's not stood up against in some way, and I'm not saying bash the dad, but what I am saying is that a woman who's a victim of mocking or scorn or disrespect or disdain in her home may have to say out loud, this isn't okay. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I'm a child of God and I want to be treated differently. Her husband still may not do that, but her son is hearing a woman say something different about who she is and what his father is saying. You know, and and we don't have time to go into all the details of this, but I will say it's something I shared with the Conquer Conference a couple of years ago. The work that I do with men, I have found that um, many of the men will do a little true and false uh, session with the men. And, and one of the questions is some form of violence in the home is normal. And many of the men will agree with that for, because their childhood was really marked by violence and abuse. The other thing to note is criminal abusers, individuals who have found their way into the court system, groups like the ones I lead through the community-based uh, outreach, have uh, traditionally have a high ACEs score. Up to 70% of men convicted of domestic violence crimes will have a high ACEs score, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences quiz. And while adversity in childhood and trauma is not a cause 
of domestic abuse. There certainly are correlations and contributors that are part of that. So children who grow up in an abusive home, who witness it, they are going to be more likely to commit those acts or become a victim themselves because, as you said, the normalcy of the behavior, the expectation Mm -hmm. that this is the way family is. I remember working with a client once who husband was verbally abusive and physically bullying. And, um, you know, when I was trying to confront her on her passivity there, she said, well, this is normal. This is how my father was. This is how my grandfather was. My grandfather was a pastor. He was the same way. Tell me your husband's never called you the B word. And I said, I'm sure he's thought it, but he's never called me. it." (laughs) And she was like, no you're lying to me. And I said, no, I think he knows that if he called me that we would have a problem here, but uh, no, he hasn't. And she couldn't even imagine because her normal was so different than what God's normal would be for a a godly home. I once had a gentleman say to me, "Um, who do you think you are, Chris? How do you think you can teach any of us? If you've never abused a woman, how are you going to teach us anything in this class? And my response was, I think that uniquely qualifies me to speak into this. In fact, I think that is the credibility that I need in order to do this class well. But it is, unfortunately, and among so many people in our world today and in the church, a common occurrence. Yeah. And violence is so widely accepted that I think um, it's harming in many ways the testimony of Christ because Jesus is not. Uh, violent. And certainly he doesn't want his people, his followers to be violent. And teach us so clearly that the use of power is to be to lift others up and to do good, not to get your way or dominate others. And so he's really clear about that throughout scripture. Absolutely. If you want, if your listeners want to reference Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 20 are great examples of the, um, it cannot be this way among you. And then of course, Jesus illustrates that in John 13 with washing the disciples feet. We see this in uh, Philippians chapter two, where Jesus is humbled to the point of death. That's how he uses his power. And that the story could go on and on and on. The scripture is full of reminders of power over or power under, excuse me, as instead of power over, which is what the world uses. Right. In your work with men, you use this particular acronym to describe kind of the process of change. Could you explain it to us? Sure. So I, I use what what we call the W, which is kind of our success path. So if you can imagine the letter W, uh, that's what I use with the men. Uh, We'll have a blank uh, W on a sheet of paper or a whiteboard when we're working. And the top points, so those three points on the top, uh, they will uh, represent information is the first. The second is transformation. And the third is reformation. The bottom points in the W, what I call the pivot points, we call ownership and surrender. And we start with information, and that is introducing men to the concept of domestic abuse, the ways in which power is used to control other people, the impact that it has, the motivations from which they come, and we try to place ourselves in the story. So we're gathering data at that point, you know, talking about the ways in which they've used power and control. You know, I called my wife names, or I have, um, Uh, isolated her from family, or I took the car keys, really specific data points that were then asking him about the impact. How did it affect your wife? And this can take weeks of just gathering good data and filling in the information. We then contrast that and put that in this idea of ownership, which is, do you take responsibility for all the ways in which you've harmed your partner and the impact that it's caused. Like that's a really big gap because a lot of guys will be like, well, I didn't mean for that to happen. And yet it did. And so the the W begins with information. We move to ownership and responsibility. And then we move to transformation. And that's the gospel. In my mind, we can't really jump to the gospel, the concepts of confession and repentance until we have something to confess and something to repent of. And I think one of the big misses in Uh, biblical counseling and Christian counseling with this population has been rushing to, to heart change rather than really developing an understanding of what the problem is. We end up confessing things like I was less than loving, or I could have been more gentle. And you can't change in that type of vague language. We need to be repenting of things like I was hateful in the following ways. I called my wife the, the B word or the W word, right? I was destructive in the following ways. I 
I slapped my partner, or I restrained her. You know, I was harmful by withholding the funds with, um, you know, eliminating her from the bank account and so on. So that specificity is really important when we get to the transformation phase. And then we talk about in that phase, the provisional, uh, positional and practical aspects of the gospel. What has God provided for you and your sin? How does that positionally change who you are? And then practically, what do you do with that? Again, this is weeks of wrestling with the contrast of the heart of violence with the mind of Christ. The second pivot point, surrender. Once we have encountered the gospel and we engage in initial repentance, we have to give it up. We have to surrender. And usually what we're surrendering at that point is control and power. We're looking to develop aspects of mutuality, reciprocity, really engaging in equality with our partners, things that's really, really hard. Uh, and then the last piece is reformation. And on that point of the W, I draw a line because that's continuing forever. That's sanctification, putting off and putting on. And I find a lot of times counselors and caregivers and pastors, they'll jump to that. They'll, they'll try to do the put-offs and the put-ons without doing all the hard work of uprooting the sin of pride, really identifying the ways in which you've harmed your partner, and then looking for the alternatives after you've come to Jesus with your sin. So we use the W as kind of our success path so a guy can kind of mark where he's at in the process. Just because I've confessed something doesn't mean I've changed. It just means I've acknowledged it. And yeah. uh, that's a big problem, I think, too, is accepting acknowledgement for repentance. I acknowledged it. It made me sad. That's not enough. Right. Right. It makes God sad more. So how are you going to respond to God's heart for your sin? And that's where passages like Second Corinthians chapter seven comes in. Worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. So let me ask you the million dollar question. How many of them really change? Are they oh, able wow. to become non-abusive and are they able to actually become loving and considerate, respectful partners? That's a, that's an interesting question because I think there's, there's no way of really like the, the proof of the puddings and the eating. And so for me, the victim is the only one other than God, of course, but the victim is the human interaction that we have to really determine, um, determine that answer. And then part of that is about willingness, his willingness to change and her willingness um, to live in whatever situation. Here's why I put it. I want sanctification. Like, that's what I want. I want holiness. I want transformation. But sometimes I have to settle for safety. Everybody changes, right? Some guys get more obstinate, more resistant, more ugly. That's actually a good thing because I can take them back to their church. I can show clearly from the scriptures where they need to be disciplined, and we can make arrangements to serve the victim. Some men make subtle changes to try to manipulate me, the church, and their wife. That's the real wicked response. That's the, we really need time, and we really need the fruit of repentance to be observed. We need many, many eyes on the prize. Um, there are men who make just enough change to be safe. They're really not interested in following Jesus, but they don't want to lose their marriage. And sometimes victims are content to restore a marriage like that. And I'm not going to be one to step in and say, no, 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 we need holiness. So sometimes safety is something we'll settle for, uh, but sanctification is the goal. And some men have radical transformations. Uh, the, I think the thing that I enjoy the most about this work is how God gives you these little gifts as you go along. You'll have case after case of just frustration, obstinance, divorce, destruction. Um, you'll have individuals manipulating. You'll have some of the men that, okay, they're safe, but they really don't care about Jesus. They're just trying not to get in trouble. And then God will give you this radical transformation, just a witness. And sometimes, sometimes it leads to marriage restoration. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes things have already gone nuclear and, and to hear a man's heart where he's broken, that he lost everything, but he's also thankful because that's what it took to change his heart, to put him in the right direction. So I can't really give a percentage. I will say that the, the world's statistics would say that if you have a community-coordinated response, this is stats from Ed Gondolf and some of the work that he's done. If you have a community-coordinated response where you have multiple people working the case and you have an individual who finishes a process, 
start to finish completes a program, you're looking at about 55% of those guys will not recidivate. And that's from a criminal perspective. I happen to have a little higher hopes for the gospel because we're not just measuring recidivism and criminal behavior. We're trying to measure transformation. So I can't really put a number on it, but I can say that everybody changes. Some people change for the worse. Some people change to be safe or, and then some people experience radical transformation. I've seen it. I believe in it. I believe that Jesus died for violent men. I believe that's the heart of the gospel. So I'll continue to preach like the idiot farmer in Jesus's story. I'll throw seed everywhere. Uh, even if most of it falls on rocky ground, I'm going to keep sowing seed. I loved how you said that one of the telltale signs of genuine repentance is there are no, the entitlement. I'm entitled to your forgiveness. I'm entitled to you taking me back. I'm entitled to you forgiving me and, and, you know, wiping the slate clean. I'm entitled to you not bringing this up again. All that is not there anymore. And so that is a shift that has to happen because if he's still trying to control her response, you need to forgive me. You need to repent. You need to take me back. You need to, you have a hard heart. He hasn't changed at all. He may be safer in that he's not going to hit her because he doesn't want to go back into the system, but he's not changed. He still feels entitled to control her response. Whereas a repentant man would say, I feel so sad that she doesn't want me back and I deserve it. <laughs> you know, I deserve it. I don't blame her. I'm sad and it hurts me, but that's not why I'm changing. I'm changing because I don't want to be like this anymore. And, and that's, that's second, a huge difference. And that's second Corinthians seven for, for individuals in the church, like myself, what earnestness, what zeal, what passion Paul goes through all these Watts that the, the epitome of repentance is this second Corinthians church who has been zealous and, angry at their own sin and eager to make restitution. So we really have some clear models for those of us in the church from scripture to say, all right, where there's a willingness to do the right thing. There's a willingness to accept consequences, right? To say, I did this and I have to set at the, and you know, I got to set in the bed that I made. And you're exactly right. When we're rushing the process, when individuals even trying to get the church on board to I've done everything you've asked. Now we got to do this my way. Those are real telltale signs that we got a lot more work to do. So what would you tell a wife as a pastor who told you, if she comes to you and she's saying, my husband is domineering or controlling or deceitful or emotionally abusive or physically abusive, what first steps of advice would you give her as a pastor? So I, I would try not to say much. And this is a, a an appeal to all my my pastoral peers. I think one of the things that we can improve on with disclosures is listening is just taking the time to sit with an individual who's hurting and listen to their story. And I'll even go a step further and believe what we're hearing. Like, okay, this is a significant disclosure. It's taken a lot of effort, energy for her to bring this to me. This isn't something that just happened more than likely. If she's disclosing it to you as a pastor She's probably been rehearsing this talk or she's been having this, you know, wrestling match in her own heart and soul. So the first thing I'd say is I'm not going to say much in that initial meeting. I'm going to try to listen uh, with her permission. I'm going to take notes to try to make sure I have a clear understanding of what we're talking about. And then I'm going to attempt to resource uh, as best I can. And so uh, a couple of things, one of the big misses again in the church, you'll see this whenever we have a blow up in the church. Uh, a case of sexual assault or domestic abuse will kind of hit the news. And uh, everybody, you know, every ministry under the sun will release a statement that was obviously written by lawyers. Uh, we need to back off just a minute, I think, and really think like a believer, not like a lawyer, and begin to put together responses that make sense. And usually when lawyers write responses, they say, report, report, report. If you receive a disclosure of, let's say, domestic abuse, emotional abuse, even physical abuse in your pastoral study, in your office, in a private setting, in the church, most of us are not mandated reporters. And I'll tell you why. Some of you are, so you need to know your local laws. It's a couple states that mandate clergy reporting. But for most of us, we're not mandated reporters because it could cause the victim, victim more harm than good. If I receive a disclosure in private, I didn't witness the violence. It wasn't like it happened in the church parking lot. That'd be a different story. I would call the authorities if I witnessed it. But I'm receiving a disclosure, 
to report that right away with one, without her consent and two, without proper safety planning would probably put her in more danger because you're exposing the fact that she told somebody. So the first thing I would do, know your state and local laws so you can abide by them. But secondly, I would listen, listen patiently and then resource. So if you're discussing physical violence and so you know that violates the criminal code in your area, you could offer police services. You could offer connectivity to the women's shelter. You could offer a victim advocate in your community to help with the DVPO, domestic violence protection order or restraining order. If they say no, thank you, then it's okay. You've done a good job by listening, being present, being available and resourcing. So that's the first thing I'd want to do is position myself as trustworthy because there may not be any action that you can take in an initial disclosure. But when you believe, you listen, you resource, the odds are good they're going to come back. The odds are good you're going to be able to follow up. Now, there's some exceptions to that. If if you really hear some red flags that would lead you to believe that this person's in imminent danger or risk of lethality, risk of dying, some things to really look for if the perpetrator's abusing pets, that's a real problem. If there's been strangulation in the behavior, that's a big, big problem. If there's a firearm present, and especially if it's been used, brandished in, in the activity, then you, I would do a little bit more urging for police contact at that point. But mostly what I'm doing is listening and resourcing. And I think one of the mistakes pastors have made is jumping in to save a victim immediately, but she already has a savior. His name's Jesus. He's much better at it than you are. And attempts to rescue prematurely could put her in in greater harm. I hope that helps answer the question. If you'd like to clarify some more, Leslie, that's fine. But that's my initial gut is I would much rather pastors listen and respond patiently and gently than to jump right in and try to fix it. Yeah. And usually if he just asks her, how can I best help you right now? Um, so if, as he listens before he gives, you know, he who listens before he hears is, is wisdom. So how can I best help you? What do you need from me? Because sometimes it's not, she doesn't want you to call anybody. She might want you to have a conversation with her husband at some point, but she doesn't want you to do anything other than believe her. And that might be all she's asking for and that you can give her that. But pastors who are understanding and supportive are one side of the spectrum. Other pastors or even Christian counselors have often blamed the victim. They have kind of said, well, what are you doing to make him so mad? Or, you know, maybe he's watching so much porn because you're not giving enough sex, or maybe he's lying to you because you make it so hard for him to tell you the truth. It's always about something she is or isn't doing right that causes him to act that way. And sometimes there's some specific things that it looks like she's not doing things right. And so you talk about Uh, where the pastor, the Christian counselor talks about mutually abusive. You're just mutually abusive. You're just both abusing each other. When in fact, she's not being abusive. She's resisting his abuse. And that looks like rebellion or lack of submissiveness biblically. But in fact, does God call her to submit to abuse? Right. So I'm not, and some folks will disagree and that's fine. We've got a little bit of a spectrum on how we use the term abuse. I'm not a big fan of mutual abuse. In fact, and maybe I'm a little too simple in my thinking, I don't see how you can mutually abuse. You know, right now at the time of this recording, the the world is kind of in turmoil as Russia has invaded Ukraine and, and Ukraine is holding firm, trying to fight the Russian forces back. I would not call the Ukrainian forces the aggressor. I would say that they're resisting the aggression. So we don't mutualize it in a geopolitical setting. I haven't heard anyone mutualize what's happening in Ukraine right now, but to to an intimate partner relationship, we do this all the time where we use that word mutual abuse. And to me, abuse is somebody who uses their power, advantage, or position to coerce, control, threaten someone else. So when an individual who isn't in power resists that, I don't know how we could call it abuse. And I'll give you a quick example because so many of the men I've worked with have come back and said ways in which their wives have sinned against them, which listen, that's going to happen. I mean, if you've been married more than 10 minutes, you're going to be sinned against right by your partner. We are all uh, stumbling in many ways as the scripture says. So 
I'll have guys say, well, my wife has called me names. And I'm like, look, I'm not endorsing that. I'm not condoning that. I'm really not a big fan of that. I don't think your wife should call you names. I don't think your wife should have you know, taken a swing at you. But I do want you to reflect on uh, the ways in which that affected you. Were you scared or were you annoyed? Did you have freedom taken from you? Was your agency somehow reduced or were you still free to leave or free to escalate? And those type of conversations have helped some of the men I've worked with recognize that, okay, there, there is a imbalance of power here that has to be viewed. You can't just say two people in conflict are abusive. No, the two people in conflict are in conflict. But when someone is abusing you, it's actually a good thing to resist. Now, I think there are good ways to resist and there's like less than good ways to resist. I think there's some ways to resist that are going to to be less effective and less God honoring, such as using violence. But often in cases of abuse, when you have an individual who's been a victim being irrational or seemingly highly emotional, volatile, angry, or even violent, rather than simply making the accusation that it's mutual, We need to do the hard work of asking good questions and digging to see, okay, is this an attempt to gain power and control or is this an attempt to resist a partner's use of power and control? And often in domestic abuse situations, it's about resistance. And we should honor resistance while teaching people how to resist biblically. It's kind of a lost art, I think, in our churches. I I do think we need to spend more time as evangelicals with our Anabaptist brothers and sisters listening to the nonviolent ways of Jesus. And I often tell my guys this too. I don't want you just to not use violence. I want you to be nonviolent. Like there's a difference. One's passive and one's active. I just don't want you to choose not to be violent because you'll go to jail if you do. I want you to choose to be nonviolent, like peaceful, and see how that impacts your home. So when a woman is protecting herself, protecting her kids, even when she's doing it sinfully, Yeah, we should address that, but not in the context of domestic abuse. Let's address the abuse first, then we can fully address the ways in which we're sinning against each other. This is so good. And I think this gets really confusing and muddled with the whole headship and submission kind of thing, because is a woman unsubmissive if she resists someone's oppressive control? And the illustration I use to help people kind of understand this a little bit is if a 12 or 13 year old young man went to his youth pastor and said, pastor, my parents are just, especially my mom. She's just so domineering. She won't let me pick out my own clothes. She won't let me, you know, after I'm done with the bath, she still wants to check my hair and my ears and she's checking my teeth and she's checking my homework. And I feel like I can't be a grown up yet. I can't be a, a young man. She's trying to treat me like I'm three years old and I can't stand it. And I keep pushing back. And, and you know, the Bible tells me to honor my father and mother, but I, I can't, I, I feel like I'm going to die inside. No youth pastor in his right mind would say, well, you just need to go home and honor your mother and let her do what she wants to do. Because resisting is part of maturing when our two-year-old says, no, I can do it myself. They're not being rebellious. They're resisting a parent's ownership over their spoon or over their, you know, toilet habits or over whatever they're resisting because this is part of God's plan for their maturity to take responsibility for themselves in that maturing process. And so when a woman gets married, she doesn't get demoted to the status of a three-year-old who can't make her own decisions or can't speak up for herself or can't decide to go visit her parents over Christmas because her husband says no, and now you have to submit or you can't go to college or you can't work part-time or any of those things because it inconveniences me. So talk a little bit about that whole messy mindset in the church about headship and submission and in, and when she resists his oppressive control, is she being an unsubmissive woman? This is going to shock some listeners. Of course she is as she should be because submission to oppression is not the same thing as biblical headship and biblical submission, right? So if we're going to say that resistance to oppression and violence and harm and force is a lack of submission, then what we've done is we've conflated oppression with headship and may it never be. I mean, I think that is a huge misstep. I had a question posed to me recently on on my own podcast about headship as if it were military or uh, corporate. And I had responded that, you know, that's a kingdom of the world vision of headship. 
like a military commander or a CEO or a king or a president. That's not how we operate, right? If you want to be great, you've got to be last. You've got to serve. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. Um, that's how our headship works. And that's how Jesus modeled it. Washes our feet. He sacrifices for us. He loves, we love our wives as he loved the church. And so this concept of headship as a top-down power over avenue for leadership is, to me, it's just foolish. I had one uh, counselee say to me one time, well, Chris, leaders have to lead. And I said, what does that mean? What does that even mean, leaders have to lead? It means, well, I've got to be in charge. Sorry, leaders have to die. Leaders have to sacrifice. Leaders have to serve. And then, you know, come back to me then and see if people will submit. Like, do people fall in line to that type of leadership? They do every time. I, one of my dear friends said it this way. She said, the leadership strategies of the world are the stick and the carrot. You either beat the beast with the stick or you manipulate it with the carrot. And what God did was he broke the stick on the donkey's back and then fed it, or, or excuse me, on his son's back and then fed the donkey the carrot. He doesn't beat us and he doesn't manipulate us. He loves us, and out of his love and compassion, we serve. So if you want to be, if you're listening today and, and you're a husband who struggled with abusive, controlling, coercive tactics, and you want to be a real leader in your home, love your family. Put yourself last and put them first, and watch how easy it is to follow that type of leadership because you're putting them first. You're prioritizing your family. My father said it to me this way when I was probably 17. He said, Christopher, the more people you add to your family, the less important you become. And it's been really good advice. And he asked me, you know, hey, you need to ask yourself every time you're getting ready to grow your family, are you ready to go a peg down? Because that's how that's how leadership works. The more people you add to your family, the less important you become. So, yes, I actually think resistance is un, being unsubmissive, as you should be. None of us should submit to tyrannical, oppressive leadership. We should resist it. And this may tie in this podcast, but wouldn't it be amazing if some of the Russian soldiers would resist the tyrannical oppressor of Putin yeah. and say, this is, this is wrong. We're not going to do this. Yeah. We're not going to do this. We're not going to kill the Ukrainians. We're not going to drop bombs. We're not going to, you know, invade someone else's houses and ruin their lives. That's hard. We wish people would have done that in Germany in World War II. So sometimes there is a tyrannical leader who's in charge. But that doesn't mean that God's people or any people need to just submit to that leader, even though God calls us to submit to the authorities. Really? But sometimes the authorities are misusing their power and they're asking us to do ungodly things. And when a husband misuses his power and authority, uh, his biblical parent misuses their authority. Um, sometimes you're going to get resistance and that may be the most healthy thing the person under that person can do for their well-being, as well as for the person on top. Great discussion. I wish we had like three or four hours. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's switch gears for just a minute. And what about the woman whose husband isn't looking like he's controlling? He's just checked out. He's watching video games all day. He's indifferent. He's playing golf. He doesn't really care about her. He's, you know, not providing for the family. He's just kind of living like the tick off the dog almost in some ways. And yet she's called to, you know, love unconditionally and persevere and forbear and forgive. And, and she's dying inside. It's like, she doesn't feel cared about or loved. Would that be considered abusive? Wow. So, I mean, probably a case by case, you want to unpack a lot of that because you don't want to just go every form of passivity because right. there could be, right. I mean, obviously there are some, some passive men, there's some tired men, that maybe need a, a mm -hmm. kick in the pants from a friend or right. a family or depressed member, men. Mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. some, some men who are really struggling with something, right. even mm -hmm. physically, uh, autoimmune disorders or mm -hmm. some certain aspects of thyroid or cancer could affect their, their motivation. So I, I don't want to put passivity as a whole in the category. I will say that the Bible has some very clean and crisp things I think to say about neglect. And that's one of those discussions we should be having in the church. Uh, Exodus 21, probably the, mm -hmm. the big case law passage. And I would love for pastors to read Exodus 21, uh, the case law of the slave wife, and then read uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and kind of compare and contrast those passages. But we do know that historically, the Bible has something to say about neglect uh, and that neglect is taken pretty significantly uh, in the scriptures. And we know from Paul's uh, letter to uh, Thessalonica, I believe it is that individuals who don't care for their own family members are worse than uh, worse than infidels, I think is the word. So there really is a financial, 
provisional aspect to being a husband and a father that we should value. And so when that's being abandoned for lesser lovers like um, video games or snack food or binge watching TV or not being engaged in an effort to help the family, it should be addressed. Now to what what extent depends on a few things. One would be uh, the individuals whom it's affecting. I'd want to know the story, the ways in which his passivity is affecting them, uh, the extent to which it's bringing about harm to the family. I've worked with several families over the years for a variety of reasons, didn't have indoor plumbing. And uh, now every once in a while, you'll come across a case where you know poverty is uh, generational and it's very troubling. But for the majority of the cases I've worked with, that was the case. There was opportunities to escape that level of poverty and the 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 husband had used that as a tactic of control, to be quite frank. So there had to be some confrontation there. And I would say that level of neglect rose to the level of abuse as it created really amazing health problems for the kids and uh, health and mental health problems for the wife. So you want to look at the effect. You want to look at the intention, the motivation. And then you also want to look at the potential. Um, If you can develop a plan to start working that plan towards motivated intentionality, deliberate provision. If he takes advantage of that, you're going to see some progress. If he continues to resist, you're going to want to deal with it. So passivity in and of itself, you got to do a case by case. But I do want your listeners to hear that neglect provisionally, sexually, financially, those are all aspects of scripture that God speaks very clearly to. And we as husbands and fathers just don't have that privilege to neglect our family for as I said a moment, lovers less wild or uh, idols that satisfy our self-gratification, if that makes sense. So it's a balancing act that I would invite counselors to do case by case, but certainly neglect falls into the abuse spectrum. Because it falls under that passage of abandonment. Um, And how we've traditionally seen that in the church is if he leaves the home, if he wants to leave, let him go. And you're not under the law and you, you know, to live in peace in first Corinthians seven. But abandonment can be done if someone's still living in the home. They're just not there. They're not providing. They're not taking care of. They're neglecting long-term in a pattern their responsibilities. I think neglect and abuse, and this is me personally, and there's a lot of good people who disagree about this, but I think 1 Corinthians chapter 7, reducing that to just desertion of the home I think kind of cheapens some of the language and it also cheapens the experience of individuals who have remained in the home. I've known many abusive men who remain present in the home, physically present because they're continuing to get what they want while their, their wives and children are suffering. But then at the same time, uh, neglect can fall into that category. So I would recommend that we wrestle with this idea of abandoning the covenant. And I even go a step farther. The passage calls us to live at peace and really evaluate that reality of living at peace in the home. Because so many of these cases that we're talking about is anything but peaceful. I'm not talking about Zen, you know, um, Kung Fu Panda peace. I'm talking about uh, the peace of Christ present in the home. And at some time you're living with an unbeliever who just doesn't care. That's the passage, right? He just doesn't care. He doesn't care to the point that he either neglects and abandons you that way, or he abandons you by breaking the covenant through um, direct abuse. That has to be taken seriously in the church, and we need to have more conversations about that. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate Is there any final words that you want to give either to the pastor who might be listening or the Christian counselor or the woman who's saying, yay, Pastor Chris, go for it. Or even the man who might be saying, I've never heard it explained this way. It's interesting. You know, most men get angry when they hear us talk, uh, but some of them have been grateful. Like they've never been talked to with the truth before and God uses it in their hearts and there is a transformation. So is there anything you'd like to say to any one of those three or all three in closing? Yeah. I mean, I can speak to everybody by saying, first of all, I, I love you. I mean, I, I really do. I wouldn't do this work if I didn't really care about the people who listen to programs like this or who follow us on social media. I love you and I want to see your lives redeemed. And I think that's something I can say specifically to men. I know men will come to me sometimes wanting their relationships restored. And I'm like, I, I can't promise that, but I want to see you restored to Jesus. That's what I want to see. I want to see, see your relationship with God restored. And then the other things 
you know, you can give that a chance. So for everybody who's listening, I, I really do hope and pray that you find the healing that you're looking for and that God has for you. I hope and pray that you have people in your life. If you're a perpetrator who love you enough to, to say that's enough, who, who really can stand by your partner and stand up against you. And if you're a pastor, I, I hope and pray you have the courage to chase shepherding as a profession rather than the celebrity culture that some of us have, you know, all of us as pastors are tempted to fall into to really shepherd your people well and understand that that's going to require um, some long, hard conversations. It's also going to require the occasional uh, scaring off of the wolf. So uh, you have a hard job, Pastor. I, I know I've been one of you for many, many years, um, but I know that God's called you for such a time as this to see the church become the safest place on the planet. It hasn't been for a long time because we either haven't been aware or we've neglected the hard work, but I believe the church can be a much safer place when we as Christians and pastors and ministry leaders take our responsibility seriously, call people to account and comfort those who are vulnerable and hurting. So well said. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your expertise. And I think we wouldn't do this work if we didn't love even the abuser. My heart goes out because you can't feel good about yourself when you're treating other people horribly. You just can't. But that pride, that that stubborn rebellion uh, is so hard to break through. And so we just hope that if you're listening today and we can be of help to you, Chris, how would they contact you? How would a man or a pastor contact you if they wanted to get in touch with your services? I think the best way is start with my website, chrismoles.org. You can find coaching programs and courses and digital courses that we have available for men and membership sites that we have available for pastors and leaders. Uh, you can tune in to the PeaceWorks podcast, which is uh, the world's worst podcast, not nearly as professional as Leslie's, uh, on all the major platforms. And I host a Q&A there every week. And then if you're a pastor or a leader or a Christian counselor, we'd love for you to connect with Leslie and I through a group that we lead called Equip, which we've been doing together for several years, working with uh, counselors, coaches, and ministry leaders who want to address emotional abuse and destructive behavior from a gospel-centered perspective. Thanks so much, Chris. That's all for this episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Right now, I invite you to head over to lesliewernick.com forward slash challenge to be part of our Moving Beyond Challenge. Learn how to move beyond overwhelm, negative thinking, and even the fear of failure. That's lesliewernick.com forward slash challenge. And if you haven't subscribed yet, be sure to hit that follow button. And we would appreciate if you would leave your honest rating and review of this podcast. Until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.